0: Let's hack the process together. Freelancing can be tough, but after nine years consulting as a mobile developer, Ryan Wagoner has learned some of the ways to make it more approachable from the start and more profitable as your business grows. Ryan still consults directly with clients on mobile projects while also running letsmakeapps.io, a curated daily lead service that helps other freelancers find new opportunities in design and development for web and mobile. In this interview, He shares with us the patterns he's built into his daily routine to make sure his top priorities are always addressed first, where to put the focus when planning on a new project, and why he thinks charging by the hour is a disservice both to the client and to the freelancer. So folks, today we're talking to Ryan Wagner, and he is a mobile app developer working for startups, but he also runs a service for other consultants who are working in that field. Ryan, how do you introduce yourself to folks since you have a couple of different careers going on?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It really depends on the audience. If I'm talking to to clients, I introduce myself the way that you just did in, in terms of I help startups develop their first mobile app and then we iterate on that and you know, so forth. I have this whole spiel that I go into for my positioning with in terms of being a consultant. And then if I'm talking to other consultants or freelancers, I typically talk about how I write and speak about the business of freelance and how to build a sustainable career as a freelancer. So I've been doing this for nine years. And over the last couple of years, I've started writing and speaking a lot more about the lessons I've learned.
0: Wow. So you've been freelancing now for nine years. How did you get started in that?
1: Well, I was actually a product manager, which is a little bit unusual, I think, for a lot of developers. But I was living in San Francisco and as a product manager at CNET, which is now CBS Interactive. But whenever I was there, I was doing kind of a Translation job, I guess, between the business side and the tech side. So I was responsible for getting what the business goals were and communicating those to the the tech team and figuring out like what issues they were running into and communicating those back to the business side and so forth. And that working kind of with those two different sides was something that I enjoyed. And it's something that has been really beneficial to me as a consultant. A lot of the work that I do is kind of a mix of technical implementation work and also basically coaching for founders to help them understand what they should and shouldn't build and why, kind of helping them fulfill that product management piece with a technical understanding.
0: I think that the role of product manager never gets enough respect. And I'm impressed that you were able to take it from being a sort of a technical product manager to actually working in as a developer yourself and then doing the consulting. Do you have any training as a developer?
1: So I've been programming since I was a kid, like literally like my dad, like dragged home like a Commodore 64 from a garage sale. And I started programming when I was probably 10. And just kind of did it all throughout high school and college. I actually went to, to school for business, partly because I didn't, I felt like I had a decent handle on, on programming and on like the fundamentals of computer science, although it would have behooved me to probably get a minor in computer science in retrospect, but um, I felt like I had enough of a, of a foundation there, and I, but I didn't understand the business side at all. And I didn't want to be pigeonholed as just a developer and kind of at the whims of the business side of the world. So I went to school for business. And I think just having those two skill sets was what allowed me to get that job. And then I became a freelancer because I started doing some web development work on the side. And after about two weeks, I was making more than I was in my day job. And so I quit. (laughs) That would have been in San Francisco, right? (laughs) That would have been in San Francisco. And this was right before, this was like 2007, right before the big meltdown, which in retrospect, Probably not the best time to just dive all in with little savings and a decent amount of debt. My wife actually quit her job to freelance the same week. Um, and so that we had a rough few years getting started because I really underestimated the difficulty of being a freelancer that I, I really thought that it was about the technical skill that I was offering. And you have to have that. Like that's kind of a requirement, but it's definitely not sufficient to be successful as a freelancer.
0: I'm sure a lot of people who get into it start with, I know how to do this, so I can go out there and do this. Tell me a little bit about the lessons that you learned with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what you said is basically how I thought and a lot of people think, which is like, people need skill X, I can do skill X, therefore, I should do it for myself. And I think a lot of freelancers, especially creatives, tend to also think like, I can do skill X, but I'm not able to do it with kind of the freedom that I want to in my current job, my full-time job. So if I leave and be a freelancer, I'll have a lot more control. And that can be true, but it typically isn't true at first. And it's its own kind of skill set. I mean, I do less, a lot less programming now than I would if I had a job as a developer. A huge portion of my time is taken up with kind of the business side of freelance. And I don't mean necessarily like bookkeeping and that kind of stuff. I mean, I spend a little bit of time on that, but you can outsource that. But it's more, the big things are sales and marketing and client management. And, you know, if you're a developer, like you add, you know, it just says a full-time job, like you don't have to, to deal with those things nearly as much. You always have office politics and things in some sense, like you're being paid to sit down and write code. And in my view, if you are a successful freelancer, you're not being paid to sit down and write code.
0: That's interesting. You talk a lot about the business side of being a freelancer. Is these things that you think that you were able to learn because of your business school training, or are they things that you picked up along the way?
1: That's a good question. I think that the business just to be clear, I just have a bachelor's in business. And I think that the the stuff that I learned there is helpful. I think, you know, some of it gave me a little bit of a framework to think about some of these things, but some of it I think is probably just my natural proclivities. Like I actually enjoy the process of sales. I didn't know that about myself whenever I started doing this, but over the years I found that I really enjoy the process of closing deals and negotiation and stuff, just in terms of talking to people who have a need and finding out the best way that I can Serve that need and in a way that's mutually beneficial and leaves us both walking away feeling really good about the engagement. That's a, a particular skill set that I didn't know that I had, but I really enjoy it. So I think some of it is just my natural personality. And then some of it is just stuff that I've learned over the years, particularly from reading and talking to and learning from other freelancers who have come before me who have kind of learned some of these lessons about how to go from
0: you know, just getting by as a freelancer to really succeeding. I really like the way that you frame the concept of sales as trying to solve a problem for both people and trying to get to a place where everybody has a benefit. I'm curious how you arrived at that and what was your experience before and after you came to that point?
1: Well, I think part of the reason that I didn't think that I was somebody who would naturally be good at sales or enjoy sales is that I thought of sales as trying to manipulate people into buying something whether or not they needed it and you know the typical like smart me used car salesman type stuff. And I think part of it was just being around other people who do sales correctly, who do it with integrity and are honest about what they're providing and the limitations of it. And And so forth and i think part of it is things that i've read even things that aren't necessarily directly related to sales so two books that i always mention are how to win friends and influence people which is a classic and then never eat alone and both of those books are really about interacting with people i think you can read those books and think wow this is like a really good primer on how to be manipulative but i think if you read them from a non-cynical view like they really are about how to listen to people how to see the world from their perspective how to mend fences and build bridges and and things like that. And those are all really critical skills when it comes to sales, because at the end of the day, like there's a, there's a human being on the other side of the table and you can certainly go through your business career, like trying to extract as much as you possibly can. But it's, you know, paradoxically, like it's actually a lot more lucrative to like find the best way to, to build a long-term relationship with somebody. I mean, all of my best, all of my best clients where I have made like much more money than a half of my other contracts are long-term engagements. Like where I've done project after project with these people and they keep coming back because they like the work that we do and, and what they get out of the, the relationship.
0: I've definitely heard that before, that it's it's much easier to maintain a good relationship than it is to try to build new relationships. You know what you have there. One thing that I that you said was caught my attention this concept that there's a person on the other side of the table. This isn't just negotiating with a manipulative goal. I understand you do a lot of your work remotely. And I'm curious the resources you were talking about, they were written before or without taking into context the idea of remote communication. I'm curious how that affects this relationship building aspect of your business.
1: Yeah, that's an that's an interesting question. I mean I think there's probably no question that it makes it more difficult. And I've made a very conscious decision. I mean I lived in, in San Francisco and I lived in New York. And in both places, I had clients who were local, but I've always made a very conscious decision to to have my relationship with my clients be remote. Part of that is just personal. Like I like to travel. I wanted to have the freedom to be able to move somewhere else. So currently I live in Nashville. And I just moved here from New York within the last year. And I wanted the freedom to be able to do that without really worrying too much about how it's going to affect my business. And I think that it is probably harder to build up a client base If you're doing it purely remote in some sense. I will say that there's a lot of people who don't live in big tech centers, who don't live in big cities, like who may find it difficult to get really great paying work locally. And my industry is just one where I do have the amazing flexibility to be able to work with people on the other side of the world. And like the tools for that get better and better all the time. I mean, right now we're doing this on something that would have been certainly a lot more difficult 10 or 15 years ago. So I think that We're very fortunate to have some of these options. And I pretty much never work for clients without starting off, obviously, with multiple phone calls. And there's kind of an initial period of like feeling things out and so forth. But I've always strived to present myself as the kind of consultant that in an ideal world, my clients would say like, I don't care where in the world Ryan is. I don't care how long I have to wait for him to be available. I want to hire him. Nobody else is going to be able to to solve my problem. In the way that I think Ryan can, and I don't obviously like I don't always hit that, but that's kind of like the target that I'm shooting for.
0: That sounds like an ideal that a lot of people would love to go for. Is that part of how you defined your business and modeled your client, your avatar for your client, around people who would be in an industry where that would be effective remote?
1: No, I mean I wish I could say that it was that <laughs> it was that planned out, but I've kind of grown up in the startup industry since I was a teenager. I've always I, you know a startup side project, and I have gone through I went through a startup incubator in Portland for a startup that I started a long time ago. And I have I bought a startup a few years ago, a, a profitable SaaS startup, kind of as an experiment to see how that would go. And so I've I've always kind of been around this industry and so it made a lot of sense for me to also offer consulting to that industry. I know that for some industries like it would be tough to do a fully remote, but I think that you know more and more of those opportunities are opening up all the time.
0: I understand that you kind of split your focus between consulting and also running your own startup. And I'm curious how that balance works for you.
1: Well, I (laughs) I would be lying if I said it was easy. So basically, the story is so I do mobile development. That's the service that I offer to my clients. And I have more demand than I can handle. And so about a year ago, I had this idea to, like, over the years, I have gotten a lot of work from less than the last few years, but I mean, I've been doing this for nine years, and especially in the first five or six years, I got a lot of work from combing through job postings online across dozens of sites, now hundreds of sites. So even Craigslist, which I think a lot of people are surprised to hear, but I've gotten multiple six-figure engagements off Craigslist. And the trick really is to think of it as... It's basically a way just to open a relationship. So you're not looking for six-figure engagements, and almost none of the ones that I got started out that way. They started as small engagements with good clients who were posting on Craigslist, and and then we worked together. And over time, like they grew into a really lucrative type of role. So that kind of process that I built up to go through thousands of freelance job posts, you know, ninety-nine percent of which are terrible, and come up with just the few that were good, I basically turned that into a service. So it's called Let's Make Apps.io. And the idea is every day I have two people who go through, by hand, they go through thousands of freelance job posts. And they're both freelancers and they understand kind of like what we're looking for. We're looking for like good projects, good clients, remote, good budgets, et cetera. As far as we can tell, obviously there's not always enough information, but there's a lot of kind of signals that you can get. And so I've kind of baked a lot of my knowledge from doing this successfully over the years into this product and into the service. And so we send out an email to the subscribers every day with 50 to 60 job post that we've kind of handpicked for developers and designers specifically. And it's a freemium service. So there's a free option where you get some of the leads for free every day. And then the pro users get, depending on which plan you're on, you get all the leads. You also get some exclusive leads that come from my network and you get some coaching services with me, depending on kind of the level that you're at. So I spend some time on that. And I have a really great staff that kind of helps me keep that going as I'm also doing my own consulting. And... This year, I think, you know, for me in particular is like a transition where I'm in the process of like spending a little bit less of my time on consulting. I think I'll always have some consulting because I enjoy it and because I, I think it's important for anybody who is in the business of writing and speaking for consultants to also be a consultant. I can to understand, you know, in today's environment, like what that's actually like on the ground. So I think I'll always have some aspect of that. But. I'd probably like to switch it more to 20% of my time doing consulting and 80% of my time spent writing and speaking and working on let'smakeapps.io and and things like that.
0: I can see the direction that you're moving in. And uh, having a staff, I'm curious how you you started as an individual and then you started building up a staff. I think a lot of people think about the idea of maybe wanting to multiply their abilities by having more people support them. How did you get started in that? Because it's a complicated step to take.
1: The answer is some false steps and and a lot of frustration and so forth. So I've actually, I mean, I've been consulting for a long time and I started trying to outsource stuff like pretty early on. I think like a lot of people, I read the four hour work week and I was like, this is amazing. Like I can just have somebody else do all my work. And I love Tim Ferriss, but it is not quite that easy. <laughs> so I definitely like hired, you know, a few developers and designers and virtual assistants and so forth over the years that like things just didn't work out. and. I bear the brunt, like the you know, the the majority of the responsibility there for those things because I didn't understand like how to manage it and so forth. But so I actually have a junior developer who helps me with the consulting stuff. And he and I have been working together for I'm not sure, I want to say 18 months, something like that. So it's been a little while. And you know, I had to go through a few different people and we've had to build up a you know, a rapport over time and and so forth. But it's great. And he is extremely helpful for you know, certain phases of projects where it's nice to have somebody just kind of take some of the load off and and so forth. And, you know, I think some of the lessons I learned while doing that, because I was having him do something that I knew how to do. So it's a lot easier to teach somebody, like where I've always had problems outsourcing anything is where like either the person doesn't know how to do it, like they haven't done this exact thing like many, many, many times, and or I don't know how to do it. (laughs) So I can't teach them easily either. So whenever I started Let's Make Apps last year, I pretty early brought in somebody to to help with like the daily curation of, of these freelance leads. And she and I just, you know, we worked out a process of like, you know, here's how we do the daily operations for this thing and so forth. And then, you know, at some point we got to the point where if she needed to take, like she was doing it day to day, I wasn't involved anymore. And if she needed to take time off or something like that was going to be an issue. So she actually recommended somebody else who came in. And so now I have two people who kind of share the load there. So we have some redundancy and and so forth. And they help with other, you know, various aspects of the business as it's grown. But I think the biggest thing I would say to somebody who is looking to outsource is that it's expensive to outsource, especially like at first. So you should expect months of it being more costly in time and money. To outsource things. That's been my experience. Um, it, t- it takes a long time to build up the rapport and like low friction environment that you need to really like be effective as a team, because that's basically what you're building. You know, you're building a team and it doesn't happen overnight. So if you're really stressed because you have too much work or something, like don't expect to outsource and have anything other than a mess on your hands for at least the next few months.
0: So I imagine that your background as a product manager helped prepare you for that
1: you know, definitely some of it was helpful in terms of realizing that things always take longer than you think they will.
0: (laughs) That's cool. So when you started outsourcing things, you said that there were some things that you found easier to outsource and some things that were harder to outsource. As you've gotten to the point where you are right now, are there things that you're still holding on to that you find difficult to let go of?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm really trying not to I think I tend towards perfectionism and micromanaging just as a natural, I mean, I'm a programmer. That is probably the core of who I am, and so I really sweat the details. Like the details are really important when you're a programmer. Like every tiny little character matters, and so I'm trying to be less of a perfectionist and less micromanaging and so forth. And I'm trying to basically outsource everything that I can, with the exception of a couple things. One is just kind of the big picture strategic thing. Like that's the thing that I need to own. Like where is this? Like what is this thing, and where is it going? And then the other thing I. Th- just for me personally, is that I don't want to give away my voice. So I don't have anybody ghostwrite for me, and I don't think I ever will. You know, I may get to the point where other people are writing content for the business, but for now, like, I'm doing all the writing. I have an editor who helps with kind of the production flow of stuff. But it's important to me that the words that I write that are written under my name are ones that I write. They're things that I believe in and care about, and so forth. So
0: I can see the, the value of of what you're holding onto versus what you're trying to to outsource. I know one of the issues that comes up when you start to outsource is how do you document your process in such a way that it can be shared and repeated consistently. What what do you use? Do you use special tools, or how do you do that?
1: Yeah, I and mean, that's a that's a good question. So it it depends kind of on the subject at hand. So with the developer he and I use GitHub just because GitHub is like, you know, it's the place that you collaborate around stuff. So we have things that are documented there and we document each individual project between us there in terms of a technical level for clients. We use Basecamp just to, for project communication and documentation needs and so forth. And then for the let's make app stuff, like I will be honest, like we are still in the phase of like, we're moving really quickly and things are, not baked in enough to where I feel like documentation would be anything other than friction so we basically substitute conversation for documentation at this phase what I mean by that is like is we have a slack channel and we spend all day basically around on slack so that if questions come up and so forth the service is not complicated in terms of its day-to-day operations we haven't really had a you know a lot of issues like where we run into a particular snags and so forth the some of the things that we're doing now in terms of like marketing and even in terms of the of the outreach like things like podcasts and stuff like we're starting to to document that more but so far that's all with like specialized tools that are kind of per per business function so to speak
0: so with let's make apps for example you've got a very different type of client relationship that you're establishing with your consulting you're creating a long-term one-on-one relationship with a startup but with let's make apps it's almost a broadcast kind of a thing. I'm curious how you deal with the difference in those different sales channels.
1: I think there's some overlap with the way that you market these two things, because you're right, like, you know, a consulting engagement is typically, it's one-to-one, it's pretty high dollar and dollar value. Like the lifetime value of my clients is like five or six figures, and that will probably never be the case for Let's Make Apps, unless somebody stays a subscriber for 50 years. <laughs> so the monetization model looks completely different. And that means that like what you can do and have it be a good return on investment is different. So I definitely think about it differently. And I I have some experience in this area of building, of kind of doing like user growth and building traction and stuff. That's something that I help my clients with as a consultant. And I've done it for my own startups in the past. So I have a background in doing things like running ads to build a list. And even some of the things that we're doing now are things that you know, some of the, the PR type approaches are, there's some overlap there, I think, in terms of like how I deal with the two different worlds, uh, if that makes sense. So I think there's a lot of value in writing and speaking about a particular topic for most audiences. And I certainly think that for me, like consulting has benefited from that and and Let's Make Apps and, and kind of the, the audience building side of the business is also benefiting.
0: Cool. Well, it sounds like a lot of that comes back down to the sort of reputation building and trying to create things that would be of interest to the people you're trying to target. I'm curious how you put that together. What What are you doing these days in order to build your reputation, put it out there and make it visible to the people that you would like to have see it?
1: I This might be naive, but I think that building a good reputation in the long run is a product of like having experience, like having experience and being thoughtful about the experience that you have and the lessons that you've learned. And then being honest about your particular position and what you know and what you don't know. So, I know a lot about consulting freelance, but I certainly don't know everything, and I try to be honest about that, but I do want to share like the lessons that I've learned. And my belief is basically that by doing that over the long run, like, you know, if people find value in that, then my audience will grow and, you know, well, everyone will benefit. And if they don't, then so be it. But I don't really want to I mean, I make a very good living as a consultant. So, This kind of new direction is something that I'm interested in, not as like, well, consulting's not working. And so I'm going to have to try something else. So, you know, if I write and speak about freelance and I can't find kind of the right audience, find people who are interested in what I have to say, I'll be totally fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that doesn't sound naive at all. That sounded like curiosity and you're exploring, which is, I think one of the fundamental qualities when you're trying to build something new like this.
1: I do have a lot of curiosity about the world. Sometimes it leads me into my wife frequently asks me if I'm the, in the Wikipedia wormhole where I just start clicking around in Wikipedia and I get lost for hours.
0: I've been there too. Actually, that kind of brings me back to another question about your, your own process, because being productive when you don't have an office and a boss and a, and a job and somebody who's telling you to show up every day, how do you manage your life like that? And how, how, are you, how do you keep yourself productive?
1: This is part of the reason that I had such a hard time with freelancing in the early days. Uh, I was not prepared to go from, I mean, I, you know, I was working in tech in San Francisco. It's not like I was in a super structured environment by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, like I had to show up for work every day and there was kind of like somebody to report to and so forth. And going from that to working from home remotely for multiple clients is like a totally different situation. And one that I was not well prepared for just in terms of my natural proclivities. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that I, I frequently say to freelancers and consultants is that you're probably not as productive as, as you think you are, and you're definitely not as productive as you can be. And I don't necessarily mean productive in terms of like making every minute count. I mean, more in terms of like, of effectiveness, and in terms of doing, building your career in a way that is sustainable for you, like psychologically and emotionally and so forth. And I know that like. You know, that particular perspective is probably doesn't necessarily fit into the like keeping it, you know, tracking your time and some of the other like kind of nitty gritty, like productivity things. But I think that they're really related.
0: It sounds like something you've bumped your nose up against personally.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely have. So I'll start like for me like to get into the weeds a little bit for me, all of this basically starts with sleep. So I am a natural night owl. I love to stay up late. Like if I had my way, I'd sit until three or three o'clock in the morning every night. And I did whenever I was younger. And what I've come to realize is that that for me anyway, I'm sure it's different for some people. But For me, like that is a productivity killer. I get a huge boost in kind of my productivity and my outlook on life in general by going to bed early and getting up early. So getting enough sleep and getting up early, which means you need to go to bed early. So... And when i say early like i mean early like this morning i was up before four i got up at 355 this morning wow. and that's not unusual i'm almost always up whenever i'm on top of my game i'm almost always up before five and if you get up early like really early you are way ahead of the world in a way that it's it's hard to appreciate until you do it for a little while so i get huge amounts of work done before anybody starts pinging me before like the world kind of turns on before anybody's expecting anything from me so by Ten or eleven o'clock, I can have already worked out, done my daily habits for the day, cleared my inbox, like hit inbox zero, taken care of a couple of the most important things that I need to get done for the day, written some stuff, and at that point, like I'm already ahead of most people. I will get, I've already gotten way more done than most people will, and so the rest of the day, I can, I can work on you know things that come up or or whatever. But for me, I have just found that nothing has been a productivity boost like. Uh, like getting up early and just having that feeling of like, of I'm ahead of the day. Like I'm not behind, I'm ahead.
0: That's interesting. Even though that you have a natural tendency to be more of a night owl, you find going against type, the added value of that extra morning time before anybody else can just interrupt you is more valuable than going with your natural inclinations.
1: Yes. I will say that there are definitely times in my life where, like, I think I'm probably more creative at night, like late at night. And there are definitely times in my life whenever you know, I'm thinking about kind of existential type questions, maybe about like where I want to go with my business over the next five years and things like that, where, you know, I think it's maybe more beneficial, but kind of day-to-day basis. Yes. I find it like the, I mean, it doesn't make sense on paper to, you know, if you're going to sleep eight hours, let's say, what difference does it make? Like when you go to bed and when you get up, as long as you get enough sleep. But I have just found that for me anyway, that is not the case. Like that there's a huge psychological boost from from having space at the beginning of your day when you're most rested, most refreshed, to do things that are important to you, even if they're not important to anybody else. So I don't know if you are familiar with like the important and urgent quadrant from, um, I think it's from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, yes, yes, I've seen that. So there's the little like important and a quadrant, like a two by two quadrant of like important and urgent. And so like tasks can either be like important and urgent, or they can be not important and not urgent. And where most people get tripped up is in things that are not urgent, but they're important. So there are things that, that you want to do that are important to you, but they're not urgent. And the way that I always think about this is that if I don't do them, no one else cares. So if I'm writing like a long post on some aspect of freelance that I want to send out because I think it's important to me and then because I, I think it'll be helpful to people, If I don't write that, no one will ever care. It doesn't matter. And those types of things I find particularly difficult to get done on a day-to-day basis if you get up late and you immediately have like this list of things that needs to get done today that people are expecting from you that you've committed to. And you don't have that kind of mental space to be able to,
0: to work on stuff that's only important to you. You make a very compelling argument about that. I, I certainly know how that is when there's a, there's something that I want to get done, but the world isn't out there waiting for it. So it sometimes never gets done.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's tough. And I have just found for me that at the end of the day, like I'm often just, my brain is just dead and I can't kind of make meaningful progress in some like, you know, there's the whole science about willpower depletion. You know, if, if I've worked really hard throughout the day, like cognitively, I just do not have the brain power sometimes to do some of these things that I want to do that are important to me. And so... I try to put those things first and get them done first thing in the day.
0: I've heard of this willpower depletion science. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: I am no expert. Well, my understanding is that they there have been studies that have shown that as you exercise willpower, that basically your ability to exercise willpower starts to decrease. And it seems like sleep actually is is something that does refresh that. But I try to put things that are going to take the most willpower earlier in the day, just because I know like working out is a good example. So. If I put working out at the end of the day, like there's a good chance I just won't do it because, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm tired, I'm stressed and it's just really easy for me to be like, eh, it's one workout, you know, it doesn't matter that much. Same thing with writing. Those are probably the two big ones for me, writing and and working out.
0: So are those two things that you try to incorporate into your morning routine every day?
1: I do. For 10 years, basically, I've done morning pages, which is basically like journaling but it's a little bit more free flowing and it's not really for recording events. It's pure stream of consciousness. So I will write 500 words in the morning and that takes me, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and I'll sit down with just anything that comes to mind. It's very often me like trying to figure out like some stupid, like how many, like, you know, what's our currently monthly revenue at? Like how many more customers are we going to need to get to the next level? Just kind of like just stupid stuff that's rattling around in my brain that I need to get out just somewhere. And I, I find that, you know, or if I'm frustrated about something or whatever it is, just getting it out on paper. In this case, I type it, but I find it to be like kind of mentally freeing. So I do that. And then I, I try to write in the morning as well. That's more public facing. The last few weeks for that has been tough. I'm in the middle of like, of a lull of overhauling my editorial process and stuff. But whenever that's working, <laughs> it works very well to write. I recommend for people who want to write, make writing like a core part of their, of what they're doing to write a thousand words a day, which is tough especially at first, but that really builds up a lot of momentum. And momentum is another like, huge productivity boost for me, anything that I can do on a daily basis, and kind of keep doing that, it forces you to work it into your day to day life in a way that is really powerful, and requires less and less willpower over time.
0: It sounds like you're also building these things up as habits so that you don't have to think about them beforehand.
1: I do. I used to have a lot of daily habits that I tracked and like kept track of. Now I have five. I, so I have five tracked daily habits. The other half like morning pages, for example, is like a true habit for me at this point. So what I mean by that is if I can't do it for some reason, I get frustrated. So like very often, like on the weekends, which I don't usually do my habits on the weekends, like I will just have like too much going on in my brain. And so I'll sit down and do morning pages. Inbox zero is another one. Like I've done it for so long and I find it so like psychologically refreshing that I almost have to do it every day, or I get really stressed out. So I don't track those, because they seem to kind of be on autopilot. If I fall off the wagon with them, I'll put them back on my list. But currently, I track five habits that are things that are very important to me to do every day, that I have trouble doing every day.
0: What do you use to track your habits?
1: (laughs) I actually use paper.
0: Paper? How do you spell that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can download it. No, I'm just kidding. So I use paper and I've gone back and forth. I've used all kinds of things. I used I've used Google Drive spreadsheets and other stuff. I may actually go back to using a Google Google Drive spreadsheet cuz I have this new public accountability experiment I think I'm going to run around habits having like an audience of people like keep you accountable for that. But I don't ever go back and like look at my data like ah in March of like 2011 like how many habits did I do. So the tracking really isn't for like data archival purposes, it's really for the act of tracking it itself. And so paper works well for me. And I I like write down like every morning, I write down like the most important things I want to get done that day. And I cross those off. That's also on a paper list. And then I also keep this thing that I call a momentum list, which is a little bit like a to-do list, but in reverse. So anything that I do that's productive during the day, planned or unplanned, I put it down on this list. And I'll tell you the value of this list is that if you hit 2 p.m. and you're feeling like, where did my day go? Like, what did I actually do today? You can look at this list and you can see like, ah, oh, I did all this stuff. And it really is for me, like a big boost of like, okay, you know, I may not have, I may have felt like I got pulled in a few different directions today and that things like didn't go as planned or whatever, but I actually did get a bunch of stuff done.
0: I really like that idea. It's, it's like the the inverse of a to-do list. It's not forcing you to move forward, but it's rather helping you reflect on how much productivity you've had.
1: That's like something that I haven't heard a lot of. I picked it up from somebody else, but I, I wish I could remember who because I don't want to steal it without giving them credit. But it's something I haven't heard a lot of other people do. I've definitely heard the kind of idea that you on your to do list, you like you write something down that wasn't on there and cross it off. So I guess it's a little bit like that. But my momentum list starts blank in the beginning of the day and I put whatever on here, like morning pages or. I went swimming this morning or cleared my inbox. I checked my bank accounts, moved some stuff around there and, you know, just whatever, just things that come up throughout the day, whether they were on my list or not. So,
0: it's very cool. I really like that one. I think that's one that I might start incorporating into my life. Tell me a little bit about the way that you've been building up your business in terms of creating this audience. You said that you had some background in building your audience and you're doing some writing. Curious if you're putting that out there or is that stuff that you're writing toward a larger thing that you're going to be releasing later?
1: So it's both I've released you know a handful of articles on different aspects of freelance to the list like to let's make apps to the audience there and for the last month or so like that's been on pause because we're actually revamping this into pretty amazing very in-depth very actionable pieces of content and just getting that process like all smoothed out has just taken a little while so it's both I guess that I've put some stuff out there in the past but and it was good. I mean, I don't have anything that I'm ashamed of with regard to that content, but I just felt like with an editor and with a little bit more process around it, like we could really turn it into something that was unique kind of in the content overload <laughs> world that we're in. So,
0: yeah, it's true there is a wealth of content, but a lot of it tends to be repetitive. And yeah it's interesting if you can come at it from a different angle and start putting together something that people are going to be looking for that could really add some value. So is that where you're thinking about taking this business next is more toward focusing on the coaching and teaching side of things?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like I started Let's Make Apps because I felt like, you know, I had seen this process of kind of curating the best, you know, the top 1% or whatever freelance job posts work really well for myself and some other freelancers that I, know, some of which I've I've coached over the years. And so I, I built Let's Make Apps because I felt like this works really well, like I'll make it a service and, and that's great. And then I started thinking about like, you know, I need to market this, like let's get it out to a wider audience and started writing content. And, and I used to write content, actually a lot about productivity and personal finance and stuff years ago at a very high output. I did not do a great job with that particular period of my life of building an audience around that. I mean, I just did it because I loved it, and I I really you know enjoyed talking about these subjects and stuff. And in the process of doing this for Let's Make Apps again, you know, over the last year, like I realized, like I really love this. I really love writing and talking about about freelance and and not just freelance, but you know, to go a little bit broad or or meta here about the idea that. Oh, it sounds so cheesy, but we only have one life, and I do not want to live mine, like working in a cubicle somewhere for somebody else and not feeling like I don't have any control over what I do and how I spend my time. That's why I became a freelancer. And that's why I don't see myself leaving freelance at any time soon. And I think that there's a lot of freelancers out there who are struggling with some of those things and feeling like the way that I did for the first few years of freelance, which is you know, it seems like people are able to make this work, but I don't see how it's going to work for me. I don't see how I could do this for another 20 years because it's stressful and I'm not making enough money and it's having a negative impact on my family life. And I have been fortunate enough to figure out how to get to the other side of that chasm. And I'd like to help other people like make that transition as well. And so over the last six months, I would say I've really made the decision that like let's make apps is important to me. And it's always going to be for the foreseeable future. I think it'll be like a core part of, of what I'm doing, but I really enjoy this aspect of like writing and coaching and speaking about freelance kind of a broader level. Like if you're a freelance writer or bookkeeper or something like let's make apps doesn't have stuff for you currently. Like we, we currently only do development and design, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't have any, anything that I would say to you if we were having a conversation about, like, how do you find good clients? And what do you do whenever a client refuses to pay you? Or how do I get my freelance business together whenever I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pay rent next month? And I have a job offer that isn't great, and I don't want to take it, but I don't know what else to do.
0: It sounds like a lot of what you could share with an audience like that, even if they're not specifically in the web development design field, is that mindset of being able to Recognize what the value is of being a freelancer in your own life and how to make that part of what you're doing.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, you said the key word, which is mindset. And mindset, I think, is like something that's probably overused in, in certain like contexts. But I really, you know, if I look at the f- successful freelancers that I know, the thing that separates them from less successful freelancers and consultants is almost always the mindset that they have, whether they came to it naturally or whether they have built it up over time, whatever it is, it's definitely, you can just, they view themselves and their business differently.
0: How would you characterize that mindset? Uh, self-respect.
1: So I think that the, the biggest reason that freelancers fail or don't do as well as they should, which is its own kind of long-term failure is fear. And it's fear driven ultimately by a lack of self-confidence that you don't, you don't fundamentally believe that you have something unique and special and valuable to offer. And maybe you what you're offering today is not that thing. But I think that for the vast majority of freelancers and consultants out there like they their technical skills are good enough. Like what they're missing is kind of the packaging around it and and the belief that there are a class of problems out there that they can solve and that the people will pay money for. And too often, because they don't believe that, they get mired dealing with bad clients and dealing with bad projects and trying to get paid and charging too little. It's just a vicious cycle that is hard to break out of whenever you're in the middle of it.
0: And it sounds like, from your experience, that's something you have to internalize. That's not something that, for example, you could say, go out there and market me, then I will be successful. Hire somebody to market you.
1: I don't think so. I'm sure there's probably somebody out there who's done that. But like all the people in my business who do that are agencies, you know, they're firms. And with almost without exception, all the successful firms and agencies that I know are people who are great at sales and marketing. Like that's the thing that they're really good at. So I'm not sure how a a solo freelancer could really outsource that piece very easily. But even if you did try to outsource it, the problem is like at some point, somebody's going to want to talk to you. And if you don't believe in what you have to offer like that's going to come across loud and clear
0: right and it sounds like getting that very clear in your mind is is probably the most important first step in getting started with something like this yeah i think so so taking what you just said and bringing you back to 2007 when you were starting i'm curious looking at yourself then and looking at what you've learned over the years what advice would you give to yourself and how would you have done things differently if you had known
1: Well, that's a long list. So I would say off the bat, control personal finances. So personal finance for freelancers, freelancers don't have like a strict separation between their business and personal finances. I mean, they should in terms of, you definitely should in terms of having like separate bank accounts and bookkeeping and that kind of stuff. But in terms of the emotions, your personal finances and your freelance business finances are the same basically. And so I think controlling your personal finances is huge for freelancers, especially early on. Because if you can get to the point where you don't have debt and you have some cushion built up, then it gives you a ton of flexibility to be able to fire a bad client, to be able to like make an investment in yourself, like going to a conference or paying for some online training or whatever it is. That's very difficult to do, even if you know you should do it. It's very difficult to do if you don't have any margin in your life um, finance-wise. So you can create that margin by cutting down your expenses as low as you can in the early days by not racking up debt, by building up an emergency fund, those kinds of things, which are not fun, they're not they're not sexy, like, but they really do have a big impact on your your personal finances. And I make about nine times as much as I did whenever I started freelancing. And that is not my personal finance situation is much better today. But that's not only because I make nine times as much. Partly I make nine times as much now because I got my personal finance situation cleaned up. And that gave me the freedom to make bigger bets with myself, to go after bigger projects, to, to get rid of bad clients who were dragging me down, to, to experiment with my pricing, things like that. That's It's just really hard to do if you need this next thousand dollars because you've got to pay rent. That's a bad, that desperation is like a growth killer.
0: Absolutely. A client can smell that on you.
1: Yeah. So that's one thing. I think the other huge thing that I would tell freelancers and consultants is to not charge hourly hourly, charging hourly really sets the tone for all kinds of like negative things with your relationships with clients. It shifts the focus to the input that you're providing, not the output that you're providing. It turns you into a commodity where it's a race to the bottom in terms of like, you cost 50 bucks an hour and this other guy costs 45. So I'll just hire him. And it's really a fundamental misunderstanding of the value that you should be providing to clients. Like you need to be selling results to clients, not your time. And if you're charging hourly, it's almost impossible to do. So if you charge hourly, not only do you put like a hard cap on how much you can make because there's only so many hours and people are only going to pay freelancers so much per hour. Like Nobody's going to pay a freelancer $500 or $1,000 an hour. It's not incredibly difficult to get to the point where you can make $500 an hour by selling your services as a value and a result that you're offering the client where the focus is not on how much time it takes and they don't care. And it allows you to to do things that would make no sense at all if you're charging hourly. So a good example is, you're not gonna make any investments in your business that are gonna allow you to get faster or more efficient if that's just gonna reduce your revenue. You're just not even gonna think like that. But as soon as you start charging for the value that you're providing, now all of a sudden, like you wanna understand, like how do I make that value even more? Like How do I provide even more value for my clients? And how can I reduce my cost structure? Whether that's my time or if I have staff, et cetera, to do that more efficiently and usually faster. So it's good for everybody. I think that for whatever reason like most people sell themselves they bill hourly because that's what a lot of people do and that's just like a fast track to mediocrity.
0: I think coming from an from an employee background a lot of people are used to the idea that they have a salary that salary is based on their hourly wage and they're just thinking that way. But what I what I really love about what you're saying is this mindset of charging by the, by the project and by the value is really focused on what value you're providing. And that's a great place to put your attention.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that I tell freelancers is to not like one of the most important things they can do is not charge hourly is, you know, we talked earlier about mindset and I think it's, you know, coming from the full-time employment world. Like it's, it's hard to get into the mindset of, I'm not getting paid to put my butt in a seat for eight hours a day. Like I'm getting paid for results because you are getting paid for results regardless of whether or not you've made that explicit. And like, you know, your client will just fire you if you're not, if they're not getting the results and your employer will do that too, but it's a lot, it's a lot longer and more convoluted a process. And it's usually not as tied to you as an individual. And you know, clients will just fire you if you don't have this mindset of like, how do I provide the value and stuff? If you don't charge hourly, if you charge by for the value that you're creating directly, whether that, that can come in a lot of different forms and you don't have to dig into all those, but if you charge, you know, a flat project rate or for a particular result or whatever it is that you're providing, it very quickly forces you to start thinking with this new mindset that you need to have to be a successful freelancer. So it's, it's kind of a cognitive hack to, to help you think about, you know, a client has hired me not to just spend 10 hours designing a new website for them or 20 hours or, or whatever, but Instead, like they want a website that increases their sales and they don't care how long it takes. All they want is a website that that increases their sales. So how do I provide that value to this client, whether, you know, regardless of how long it takes. And there's a whole, there's a lot of art that goes into making sure that you're charging enough because particularly in the early days, you know, a lot of freelancers, I think they try project pricing and some other types of pricing things. And they're not good at it, and so they get screwed. Not screwed. I mean, they, they basically end up having to do a lot more work for less than they would have made if they charged hourly. And so they're like, ah, oh, this doesn't work. I'll never try it again. And it's it's a skill like anything else. It's something that you can learn and that you know it takes a few times to get it right. But I'll tell you that once you do, it's well worth it.
0: What you were saying, absolutely. I, I completely see what you're coming from. And I can also see how getting that mindset in place can help make the sales and marketing side of a business that might be intimidating for some new freelancers feel more compelling because that's really where they're focusing now. They're trying to figure out what their value is.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Cool. So I think everybody out here is going to be looking forward to seeing some of your more long form content as it starts uh, trickling out into the marketplace. How can people find you online? So the easiest thing is to just go to
1: letsmakeapps.io slash hack the process and I'll set up a special landing page there for Listeners where I'll give away like a substantial lifetime discount for Let's Make Apps if you want to upgrade to a pro plan. And then I'll also I'll send out a couple of other bonuses that I think the, the listeners will enjoy. And then you'll also get the kind of the new long form content whenever that starts going on.
0: Fantastic. I'll I'll definitely link to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today.
1: Absolutely, it's my pleasure.
0: Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.